been given the role of reciting the early days of TCF, how it all began and grew. Now you might ask, Jim, what are your sources? Well, my first source is my own experience. I was Minister Beller Christian Church uh, nine years when Bill Sanders was hired at Brookside Baptist and we became neighboring preachers and much in competition with each other, which is a mistake on my part. And I'd been uh, then the minister of Bella Christian Church 10 years when Bill was fired. And so I, I witnessed those events from the outside. I saw all the newspaper articles. Barbara and I at one point became involved in ministering the Restless Ribbon with Bill and those uh, who were a part of what he was doing. And then there was a time when, because TCF did not have a church building, at Bel Air Christian we opened our building to TCF, and so TCF used the Bel Air building for various midweek meetings. So I, out of my own experience, some of the things that I'll read today came. Also, when I came to TCF in February of 1981 to be a servant to Chuck and Bill, one of the things I began doing was archiving early records of the church and reading these and and getting a picture of some details that were foreign to me. And then the various newspaper articles that we have seen. And then, intentionally, I interviewed some folks for what I have written this morning uh, to get uh, details of some things that, for me, were still ambiguous. So those are the sources. But I want to say something in beginning. I don't think anyone here knows how many hours Bill Sullivan and Debbie Manchester have invested to make this happen today. Let's, let's give appreciation to them. As we look at the beginning years of TCF, we have to see that God did some amazing things through really some very extraordinary people. Mid-1968, Dr. Lewis Emerson Maples, pastor of Brookside Baptist Church, resigned to become a part of the Southern Baptist Home Missions Board. Now, Dr. Maples was the very epitome of establishment dignity. He was a man who was highly respected by the Southern Baptists. But when he resigned, the Brookside Baptist Board of Deacons appointed a search committee to find a new man for their pulpit. Now, it's interesting, they instructed the committee to find a, quote, spirit-filled, end quote, candidate. Now, to Baptists, spirit-filled meant somewhat enthusiasm and vision, rather than a status quo pastor, as Dr. Maples had been. Of course, they didn't realize what they were going to get. Now, Bill Sanders was already a young preacher known to much of the congregation, he very quickly became the committee's candidate of choice. Bill was a native Tulsa Brookside Baptist, had been his home church when he was a boy. And while he attended Tulsa University, Bill had been the minister of education at First Baptist Church in Broken Arrow. And members from that church by this time had become members of Brookside Baptist Church. But there are other things that commended Bill to the committee. While Bill was a student at Southern Seminary in Kentucky, he became the pastor of a Baptist mission church. This a mission church is one that can't be self-supporting, so the denomination supports it. When Bill went to Fern Creek Baptist Church, they were running 170 in Sunday school. 
During the seven years that he was there, the church grew to having 1,100 in Sunday school and certainly no longer was a mission church. Fern Creek Baptist was full of life and growing. Another thing that commended Bill to the Brookside Baptist Committee was the fact that Bill was well known in Tulsa. While he was a student at Will Rogers High School and while he was a student at Tulsa University, Bill had racked up an amazing record as an athlete. His name was not a stranger to the Tulsa sports page. I recall reading one article and the caption went something like this, Bill Sanders defeats, and I forget the name of the other college, but uh, the article told about his feats in a particular baseball game and how his exploits really had won the day for Tulsa University. And anybody in this building who ever competed in any sport against Bill knows that whether it was baseball, football, basketball, volleyball, tennis, table tennis, horseshoes, you name it, you might as well understand you're going to lose more often than you're going to win. Bill was born with a very competitive spirit, but with that competitive spirit, God also endowed him with the ability to always be a winner. And Bill was a winner in everything he undertook, whether it was sports, whether it was church, whether it was anything. Here's a man whom God had endowed in a very special way, really for a very special purpose. With all these considerations in front of them, the Brookside Church Committee considered Bill to be the perfect candidate, and he was called and installed at Brookside Baptist Church November 5, 1967. Immediately, Bill brought changes to the church. He brought life, he brought innovation, he brought excitement, and frankly, a bit of mischievousness. If you know Bill, you know that's just a part of his nature. <laughs> he, he brought especially, though, a lively evangelistic flavor. Bill very quickly organized calling teams, and one night a week they would go door to door evangelizing in the neighborhood around Brookside Baptist Church. Now you who were alive in that time and old enough to know it, know that in the 60s and 70s the societal situation in America was in a time of great evolution and revolution. Many young people totally disillusioned with the establishment and much of this began with controversy over the Vietnam War began to drop out, as they would say, uh, total nonconformist behavior and dress. Sad to say, drugs became a driving force in that culture. And that was manifest in Tulsa with the restless ribbon. Now, unless you were alive in that time and were one of those young people on the ribbon, or as in my status, one trying to work in the ribbon, there's no way in the world we can make you understand the Restless Ribbon. It was a two-mile stretch from 31st to 51st on Peoria and then leapfrog down to Woodward Park at 21st. Not hundreds, but thousands of young people jammed that two-mile stretch in Woodward Park every night. And that went on for really about two years, perhaps even a little longer. They were there during the day, but especially during the night. Brookside Baptist, 36 in Peoria, was located right in the heart of the Restless Ribbon. One night, 
as the calling teams were getting ready to go out into the neighborhood, there was an old man, and you know for years I've tried to find out this man's name and have not been able to do so, but an old man said to Bill, why don't we take a walk down Peoria? No Baptist ever wanted to be seen in the ribbon. (laughs) But Bill said, being the kind of fellow he was, why not? So he and this old man walked south to 51st and then walked back to the Brookside Baptist Church building. And in that walk, something happened in Bill Sanders' heart. From that time onward, the neighborhood around the Brookside Baptist Church building was somewhat of an afterthought. His heart was captured by the young people. And Bill very quickly became known as the chaplain to the ribbon. (laughs) One thing that was really uh, striking was uh, the newspaper coverage that was given. Beth Macklin of the Tulsa World really became somewhat intrigued and I have to say in some ways enamored with what Bill was doing. And so she began to give very extensive coverage to everything that was going on, both on the Restless Ribbon and the changes that Bill was bringing to uh, Brookside Baptist Church. When Dr. Charles Farah, who is a professor of theology at the newly formed Oral Roberts University, began reading these articles, he got excited and he called Bill and he said, Bill, if you ever need help, let me know. Of course, Chuck wasn't a Baptist and he wasn't called at that time. But Chuck had a background in navigators and he thought that his training and experience would really be helpful in discipling some of the young people that were coming to Christ. And many did come to Christ. And in time, because of the work that Bill was doing, other members of Brookside Baptist became deeply, deeply involved in that work. Now, as young people gave their hearts to Christ as they were converted, as they were saved, they began attending Brookside Baptist Church, really in growing numbers. And as might be expected, the traditional members of the church became quite upset by this invasion and the changes that were taking place. First of all, these kids didn't act like Baptists. Secondly, instead of filling the back pews like Baptists do and work their way forward, the kids came in and sat down front. Not only that, they didn't dress like Baptists. They didn't change their counter-cultural attire. And they didn't behave in the orderly manner that dignified Baptists uh, thought was appropriate for a church service. Some of them, these traditional Baptists, became so upset that they wanted to get rid of Bill. But how do you do that? You can't fire a Baptist pastor for getting people to do what they dubbed praying the sinner's prayer. There was just no way. While Bill was ministering in Kentucky, he had been visited by a Baptist pastor who had been touched by the Holy Spirit Renewal Movement in one section of the Baptist church. There was a journal that was being published at that time by some of these men. Now, I met this man twice, and I've racked my brain and tried to remember his name, and I can't do it, but we'll call him Johnson. Uh, Brother Johnson had visited Bill, laid hands on Bill, prayed for him, and as a result, Bill had prayed in tongues. Now, Bill didn't preach this doctrine, Matter of fact, he didn't even tell anyone about his experience. 
And if you look at the articles that are on the table out there, you'll find one interview in which Bill said he did not believe in the use of tongues in a Sunday public service. But even so, praying in tongues became very important in Bill's private devotional prayer life. Now, there was a lady who taught the junior high girls class at Brookside Baptist. She had attended some kind of a meeting somewhere and had experienced tongues. And she was so excited about that that she began telling her junior high girls class about it. And you can imagine this upset parents of the junior high girls. And they began to accuse this woman and some way, and to this day, no one knows how, she learned that Bill prayed in tongues in his private devotions. And so when they began accusing her in her defense, she said, Pastor Sanders prays in tongues. <laughs> well, as word of Bill's prayer life began to spread, the Baptist traditionalists realized they had ammunition. On Wednesday evening, October 1st, 1969, Bill and his family showed up for the usual Wednesday night midweek service and prayer meeting. They were somewhat surprised to see how filled the parking lot was. Some folks really were motivated to pray for some reason or other. Unknown to Bill, the deacons had called a congregational meeting. Two resolutions were presented to the church that night. The first was to vote in an amendment to the church constitution. That amendment was stated that glossolalia was not the doctrine of Brookside Baptist Church and anyone who practiced it should be excommunicated. The second resolution was to fire Bill Sanders because he violated that amendment. Over the protest of many members, there was sufficient majority to vote and approve these two resolutions, and Bill was fired. Now, the upshot was that the church put a stop to ministry among the youth of Restless Ribbon. Bill didn't know really what to do next. He and his family went to California. Bill planned to spend some time with Ralph Wilkerson, the pastor of Melody Land, which was a prominent center of the new charismatic movement. Indeed, that's what they did. Even though the Brookside Baptist deacons had shut down things that Bill was doing on Peoria, seven families in the church felt called to continue that ministry. And so they left Brookside Baptist. They met together to form a new church, and they planned to continue ministry among the young people of the Ribbon. Nettie Hudson, whom we just saw, is the only surviving member of that group. Let me read excerpts from a report written by one of those who was a part of those initial meetings. The first gathering of the group was in the home of Jim and Catherine Profater on Sunday, October 5th, from 11 to 12 noon. Baptist doctrine, one hour. <laughs> there were about 40 people. We had a sweet service. The next Sunday, the group met in a preschool nursery just west of Peoria on 41st Street. Incidentally, that nursery was owned by a Catholic lady. It's no longer there. It's been demolished. There's a department house there now. The nursery was quite small. 
but we loved each other. And it didn't really matter how inconvenienced we were by the facility. We were just glad to be together. We continued meeting in the nursery morning and evening each Sunday with different men in the group speaking at each service. By the third Sunday, we were sufficiently organized to have the children in one room and the adults in the other. That helped, and there's an exclamation mark after that. (laughs) Of course, we needed committees, one to name the church, one to write doctrine, one to establish the Sunday school. We had great plans, all Baptist-oriented, of course. The church took its first offering in coffee cans used by the nursery to hold crayons. This money needed to be put in the bank, but you can't open an account for an organization unless the organization has a name. Therefore, the men who were involved in forming the corporation got together to try to decide on a name. One man said, let's just call it Christian Fellowship until we decide on a name and then we can change it. Another man said, or uh, what about Tulsa Christian Fellowship? And thus the church had a name. Being Baptists, they felt that their new church had to have a pastor and that he had to be an ordained Baptist pastor. To meet that need, they contacted Bill Sanders and asked him if he'd return to Tulsa to be the pastor of this church that they had launched. Bill and his family immediately returned to Tulsa And Bill became the pastor of the new church. Now that they had an ordained Baptist pastor to lead them, the group rented Orville Wright Junior High and held their first public service in that building on November 2nd, 1969. About 300 people showed up, and the new church was on its way. Again, one thing that helped the church move forward was Beth Macklin. Uh, this was hot news. And so Beth wrote daily, uh, sometimes daily, always weekly articles about Tulsa Christian Fellowship. Beth and other writers following her lead chronicled everything that TCF did in the early days. And I can remember, Frank, personally, that it was routine to pick up the paper every day and read who had been arrested for drugs the night before and what TCF had done yesterday. Uh, TCF was front page news uh, during those times, and pictures of Bill and other members of the church involved in the ribbon were a constant presence in the daily papers. Well, with the quickly multiplying size of the church and the ministry to the young people growing by leaps and bounds, Bill Sanders realized he needed help. He remembered the phone call he'd received months earlier from Dr. Farah. Bill gave Chuck a call. Asked him to join him in leading the church, and Chuck enthusiastically became the co-pastor with Bill. You know, any of you who worked with these men know that the personalities and gifts of these two men complemented one another in a way that the effectiveness of both of them was enhanced. They were very different men. In 1971, in order to establish some sort of a credit rating... TCF purchased two refurbished older homes from Marshall Horn. This move proved to be providential. They sold one of the homes, but kept the property at 518 South Exanthus, not certain what they'd do with it. In 1971, Roger and Jeannie Staub had a drug rehab ministry located on South Cheyenne. 
The program was intense and it was effective. And some of their clientele consisted of drug addicts who were given an option of going to jail or entering the Way Out program. That was the name of their program. Coincidentally, about the time TCF bought the 518 South Xanthus property, the Staub's landlord refused to renew the lease on the South Cheyenne property. Knowing of their plight, the TCF leaders invited the Staub's to move their ministry into the Xanthus house and continue their ministry there. This they did. The success with the youth on the ribbon quickly presented a problem for the Sanders family. Many young people who accepted Christ were runaways. Some had been expelled from their homes. Some just wanted a safe place to spend the night. As a result, the Sanders house became a crash pad. Bill commented when he had to get up at night to visit the bathroom, he had trouble because he had to step over so many people who were sleeping in every corner of every room of his house. The 518 Xanthus property occupied by the Staub's ministry had a second smaller building on the back side of the lot. In that building, TCF launched the one-way crash pad with Gordon Wright overseer. Drew Graham, a prophetic brother in the church, was appointed the supervisor of the one-way crash pad. Now, initially, Gordon lived with the young men in the cramped downstairs portion of the building because upstairs a helpline counseling center uh, was busy answering crisis phone calls. But when the counseling center was moved elsewhere, Gordon moved upstairs, and Philip Bernard from Big G Ranch came and occupied the downstairs area with the young men. The fall of 1972, at the invitation of an Arkansas state senator whose sons had been delivered from drugs through the ministry of the Staubs, asked them to come to Arkansas and establish a rehab ministry there. They did that and left a couple, Jim and Marilyn Jones, in charge of the Way Out Rehab program. But under the Jones leadership, the Way Out program disintegrated. Gordon Wright and a team surrounding him then were given the larger house. And by the way, it's much more complicated than that, but I'm summarizing. And the one-way crash pad became the Jesus Inn. Well, let me tell one interesting story, which Gordon reported to me yesterday. Robert McDonough surreptitiously moved in to the downstairs of the house, and nobody knew he was there. And he began to go from room to room with oil and anoint every wall with crosses, praying for God to move those other folks out so <laughs> the folks in the backside could have the big house. So we could blame that, the uh, Joneses' failure on Robert, perhaps. <laughs> but under Gordon's leadership, the ministry thrived. He and the team he recruited to join him created an effective vehicle for continuing the bulk of the ministry to the disenfranchised young people. Though always affiliated with TCF, Jesus then later came to be incorporated as a separate ministry and continues as such today. With the development of Jesus then as TCF's ministry to that particular demographic, the larger church no longer was identified primarily by its ministry among the youth. TCF quickly became the Tulsa center of the burgeoning charismatic movement. Every Sunday, five buses made two round trips between ORU and wherever TCF 
happened to be meeting at that time. TCF met in Orville met in uh, East Central, met in Edison, back to Orville at one point Bird Junior High, I think the second summer. Everybody who was anybody in the charismatic movement, nationally or internationally, was a speaker at TCF. During those years, TCF was an event-oriented church, and as always, it was a subject of significant articles in the daily papers as well as television programs. A major doctrinal crisis took place when Bill Sanders' wife, Marty, died of cancer. Many in the church, as well as some in the church leadership, had accepted and taught the Word of Faith doctrine. When Marty died, Word of Faith advocates in the church blamed the church leadership. They asked the question, who was it among the leadership who lacked the faith to heal her? As a result of her death, TCF's attendance, which peaked at around 1,200, fell to around 800 per Sunday. That was in a, over a month that happened. Out of that experience came Chuck Ferris' influential book, From the Pinnacle of the Temple. TCF became known for its efforts to oppose the extremes of the Word of Faith doctrine. And TCF also became the place of healing for many who had been wounded by the extreme Word of Faith doctrine. And you who are around in those days remember how many people we had in the church who were here beaten. I know of one man who says he lost an oil company uh, through the Word of Faith doctrine who came here for healing and to reestablish his faith. Through Chuck Farah, TCF also was instrumental in bringing correction to the shepherding movement, which kept many in bondage during the 1970s and the early 80s. And as you already saw this morning early on as various missionaries visited TCF, the leaders prayed that God would give TCF just one missionary of its own. That prayer began to be fulfilled when Jeff and Gwen Fleming's became TCF's first full-time missionaries. Today, according to missiologist Don Richardson, TCF has more missionaries per capita than any other church with which he is acquainted. No one can take credit for this. The church just cooperated with what God was doing in its midst. The church began a new chapter in November 1980. After meeting in Tulsa Public School auditoriums for 11 years, the congregation purchased the former Big Red Furniture Warehouse at 2121 East 3rd Street and converted the warehouse into a church building. The building was both a plus and a minus. On the plus side, the church no longer had to haul everything in and out of the school building each week. Now imagine this, every Sunday, in those days the church used hymnals, all the hymnals had to be hauled in placed on the seats, uh, and, and the Jesus Inn folk did so much of this. They, there was a, a portable nursery, all kinds of cribs hauled in and set up. Everything else having to do with a church service was hauled in and set up. And at the end of the day, it all had to be broken down, put in trailers and so on, and hauled off and stored until next week, repeat that routine again. So church building, that was the biggest plus, <laughs> But the church also had a building where weekend and other meetings could be held. On the minus side, we're not going to talk about all the repairs and work. 
But on the minus side, when the building on East 3rd became the church home, a number of families left the church. As long as TCF met in school auditoriums, there was a sense that it was a church for the city. When TCF bought a building located near downtown Tulsa, several families left because they wanted their children to attend church in the community in which they attended school. They no longer saw TCF as a church for the city. From the first, Chuck and Bill had expressed a desire to have a New Testament church rather than one that was defined by denomination or cultural mores. That term meant different things to different people. To some it meant small groups. To some it meant following the New Testament pattern of salvation. To some the term meant the pattern of New Testament church government. To some the term meant experiencing in the church gifts of the Holy Spirit. To some the term meant having in the Sunday service the elements that were present in the early church, on and on and on. Over the years, the leadership wrestled with each of these issues And by 1996, had come to a general, though not precise, understanding of most of these topics, resulting in the present configuration and practices of the church. To tell the full story of TCF would take hours and not the few minutes we have this morning. So we're going to let this summary be sufficient. Let me say this, sometimes individuals get hung up on genealogies and they start researching from whence their family came and somehow find identity and worth in that. Let's not do that here. (laughs) Let's not live in the past nor even in the future, but in the moment as the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and leading us every single day, every week as we seek to serve him. On the other hand, let's give thanks to our Lord who sovereignly, through a series of events, and through really some extraordinary people, brought TCF into existence. May our Lord be glorified as we together continue to write further chapters in the history of TCF. Anyone who wants a copy of this, there are a few on the table back there. And if we run out, and especially if you want an electronic copy, uh, you can contact the office and one will be sent to you.